Morning, everybody. Let me pray for us as we uh, dig into God's Word and try and understand and apply it to our lives today. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we pray that your Word would be our guide, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. We pray this for the sake of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I don't know if you drive, but if you do, I'm sure you've come across this phenomenon. Little voices chipping up from the back. Why are we going this way? Um, are you not going to overtake? I mean, come on. Just try one car. You might get a taste for it. Um, oh, you could have made that light. You could have made that light if you tried. I mean, it wasn't really red. It was just pink. We're going to be late now. I'm, of course, talking about the infamous backseat driver. Passengers in the car correcting and criticizing every move you make and probably think they're being helpful. But according to a recent survey of motorists, over a fifth report having had an accident or a near miss because they were distracted by a backseat driver. And just over half said that their driving was negatively affected by them. Now, I mention this not because I have any particular axe to grind. Uh, I have to admit, actually, at points, I have been one of the worst culprits. <laughs> but it's just that a friend of mine said to me recently that lifelike driving has its backseat drivers. It isn't just a question of looking at the map and following it. No, uh, you've got to handle the myriad of voices telling you that they know the way and, that, uh, and what they think of the map. And we've got something like that going on here in 2 Peter. Uh, Peter's writing to young Christians, and they're on their way with Christ. And Peter has supplied them with the map, the truth of the, well, the words of Jesus to show them clearly where they are going and how to get there. But his fear is that all those backseat drivers will distract and entice them with their opinions of what the map might have said or should have said or meant to say, or just ensnare them with talk about how much better life would be if there wasn't even a map at all. You can't live the Christian life without handling backseat drivers. And in this letter, as we're going to read on, <laughs> the, with Peter's uh, readers, they are false teachers who are mocking the promise of Jesus' return. They denied the destination, if you like. Seriously, they said, you know, where is it? It's been ages. He's not coming back. <laughs> yeah, so, so, therefore, there is no judgment day. Come on, let's not have any silly chat about that. Let's just get on with living our best life now, because that's the only life you've got. And as a result, they were leading people into a life of immorality, following their own sinful desires, as chapter 3, verse 3 puts it. And so Peter's wisdom for us this morning is summed up in just two words. You can see it, actually, if you look in verse 19. Pay attention. Which is the kind of comment which usually doesn't get much of a response as the passengers on an airline reach for the in-flight magazine when the safety briefing starts. 
Or teenagers roll their eyes and go, yes, yes, to their parents. Especially when the person talking to you then goes on to say, pay attention because I have nothing new to tell you. I mean, that seems to be the gist of verses 12 to 15, doesn't it? Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter wasn't telling his readers new things, but old ones. Verse 13, to stir you up by way of reminder. So that verse 15, you may be able to recall these things. You see, as the backseat drivers start whispering in their ears, Peter is telling them as clear as he can, pay attention to what you already have. That these things are what he's already written to them about earlier in the chapter, the divine power by which God has brought them to faith and, verse 3, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And which properly handled means that, verse 11, we will be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, you need reminding. You need your memory refreshed in the truth about your eternal future and how to get there. Even though you know it, even though you may be firmly established in the way of Jesus, even though you may have heard it tons and tons of times before. I wonder what's filled your immediate horizon over the last few weeks, the last month. Maybe it's been deadlines at work or exams that have been looming large. Maybe it's been getting ready for the holidays. Uh, Then again, it could be just trying to survive the little years, (laughs) the early years of parenthood. There's so much to fill our immediate horizon that we can go weeks or months even without thinking about the ultimate horizon of God's eternal kingdom at all. I remember once seeing an advert for um, a pension policy. It was a picture of a very sprightly looking retired couple striding by the edge of the Grand Canyon, looking like they had loads of money to burn. And the caption? because it's the only heaven you'll get. We all know that we live in a world full of lies and fake news and distractions too, where we encourage to live our lives only just for the here and now. Which is why Peter makes issuing these reality reminders the aim of his ministry before he dies. Do you notice that there in verse 13? Let's have a look at it again. He he says he thinks it right to do this as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Even more striking than that, it's also the aim of his ministry after his death. As he goes on in verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. If you had a short time left to live, what would you do? Well, for Peter, it's not a case of 
going traveling and ticking lots of things off his bucket list, is it? No. He says, I'm going to dedicate myself. I'm going to make every effort to deposit gospel truth into the lives of others so that they can continue to grow in godliness once I'm gone. He'll achieve that by writing this letter to Peter. He'll be the man behind Mark's gospel, uh, the main source of it, no less. I think our legacy might be not quite so grand as that. <laughs> but I wonder who you might be able to invest in like that this summer. If you don't know where to start, then how about diving into Mark's gospel with a friend or, or someone who's recently started here at the church, they're new to church. Uh, perhaps by getting hold of uh, Christianity Explored, which you can find online, and, and just meeting up with them and watching the videos and, and, and opening up the Bible together. Or how about using a resource uh, like this uh, Better Story uh, um, booklet, a little short thing, just three small studies, or its longer cousin, Word One-to-One, -one, which takes you through the whole of John's Gospel in the end. Or for those who are more mature, for helping those who are more mature in their Christian walk. Maybe you could get together with somebody and, and, um, and read The Prodigal God by Tim Keller or The Ordinary Hero by Tim Chester. And then once you've read a chapter, get together, discuss it, pray it through, wrestle with it, weave it into your lives. Or you could, another resource, again, get together with someone and do this real change course, six-week course, really, really helpful at weaving gospel truth into your life and, and the life of someone else if you meet up with them and discuss it and pray it together. There are loads of resources out there, but the issue is, can you see the urgency? We are not here for long. So don't allow yourself to be taken in by the whispers and become all consumed by the here and now. Dig deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ and live life now in the light of his return. Pay attention to what you already have. Why? Well, pay attention, Peter says, because we have seen Jesus' glory. Have a look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there, Peter says. And they were there, weren't they? Peter and James and John were there in Matthew 17 as, as Jesus took them up a hill, up a mountain, for his transfiguration. That's what Peter's referring to here. And, and they saw there just a glimpse of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We've got to the stage as a family where it's really, really hard to find a film that we all might actually want to watch. And so what we have to do uh, to, to, if we want to try and gather everyone together for a family film is we have to kind of line up a, a few options and then watch the trailer together. 
Sometimes that can be such a painful process, it can take like five or six trailers, um, by which point you haven't actually got a lot of time left to watch a film. But it does help. It does help so that we can be confident that we know what's coming. And that's kind of what happened back at the Transfiguration. It's like a teaser trailer. It's just a glimpse, just a peek into what it is going to be like when Jesus comes back. For just a moment, they saw his, verse 16, his majesty. Before we move on, let's just pause to think about that. Look how Jesus is described in these verses, receiving glory and honor from the majestic glory, no less. Matthew writes that his face shone like the sun. His clothes were as bright as light. I wonder sometimes if we really play down or kind of domesticize who Jesus is. He's not just a slightly better version of you and I. No. He is a man, yes, the very best of men, but he is also fully God. He is the one who holds all things together. He is the one who, through him, everything was created. He is the one who reigns supreme over all things. And if you were to meet him now, you would fall down before him on your face, speechless and overwhelmed. Jesus is truly awesome. He really is. So we need to take him seriously when he says he is coming back. Yes, Ken, you might say, but how do we know that the message of Christ's return isn't just fabricated scare stories to get people to toe the party line, like, like parents when they used to, I think, back in the day, you know, tell kids that they had to eat their broccoli or the boogeyman would get them. That's what many people would say today, wouldn't they? Not, not about broccoli, <laughs> but about Jesus' return. From Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, to atheist scientist Richard Dawkins, to your mate at the pub. Well, pay attention, says Peter. This is God speaking. Again, again, he makes this point here. Have a look at verse 16. Again, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, were, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, we're not making this all up. Oh, we saw it with our own eyes. Verse, 15, verse 18, they heard it with their ears too. And Peter, like some others, ultimately died for saying what they saw and what they heard. And I suspect that most of us here would have backed down earlier than that if we knew that what we were saying was something we just cooked up by ourselves. But they didn't because they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And not only that, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What Peter is saying is that the Old Testament prophets also promised this life beyond life. 
They spoke of the morning star rising. That's Jesus coming back. In fact, they made a whole load of promises, both short and medium and long-term, about what God would do, a bit like the short and long-term, uh, medium and long-term weather forecasts. Take Isaiah, the prophet. In his short-range forecast, he promised that the people of Israel would go into exile. Isaiah 39, verses 5 to 7. And it happened. He promised that a new power would then let them come back from exile. He even named the very king who would do it 150 years before the event in Isaiah 45, verse 1. King Cyrus of Persia. And it happened, just as he said. He promised that God would send his Messiah to suffer for our sins and die and then rise again from death, Isaiah 53. And it happened. And he promised, and these are Isaiah's exact words, that God would, Isaiah 65, verse 17, create a new heavens and a new earth. And so Peter says, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Uh, Not that Isaiah's words were a bit iffy when they were first written down. Less trustworthy. No, it's, it's just from our vantage point. We can look back and see that God has a really good record at keeping promises. An incredible record. Okay, you might say, well, lucky guess. If I was to throw out a a number of kind of predictions about the future, you know, like flying cars or Scotland becoming independent or uh, even Newcastle United winning the league, then, I mean, I'd be sure to hit the mark, you know, at least with some of them. But Jesus fulfills 60 major Old Testament prophecies, 300 in total. (laughs) There is no way these fulfilled prophecies are just a fluke. They are from the mouth of God, Peter says in verse 20. As a first importance, we need to know that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's final appeal here is to the authority and inspiration of Scripture. He's saying it's was written by people, but their words are God's words. How does that work? Men writing, and yet they're God's words. Well, when it says they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that word carry is where we get the word ferry from, same root word. Don't know how often you've been on ferries, but I, I, I love a little ferry ride. Um, I get really excited by them, probably sort of over the top so. But if you've been on a ferry recently, you know how it works. You, you roll your car on board and, and then you, you know, get out your door without you know, trying to bash the car next to you. Not least because it's a shiny sports car. But then on the other side, you've got this whopping great big HGV. And in front of you, you've got a caravan. And behind you got a minibus from, minibus from which are, are decanting 35 feral youth who are now you know, romping around in and amongst all the cars and the HGVs. That's what it's like, all kinds of different vehicles. But they don't all go in different directions, do they? No, they're being ferried along to the same port of call. 
And in a sense, Peter is saying that the writers of Scripture are like cars on a ferry. Each writer is different, different personalities, living at different times and having different experiences and writing with different styles. But they don't all go shooting off, just saying whatever they want, going in different directions. No, together they are carried, inspired by the Holy Spirit. God gave them their visions and gave them the correct interpretation of those visions. By his spirit, God guided what they wrote down. So in the Bible, uniquely, we have words of men which are simultaneously 100% the words of God. And again, you find that attack today by the backseat drivers. Even in the church, as it seems that the approach that has taken hold in the power structures of many churches, not least the Church of England, is a philosophy that treats the Bible as simply human guesswork about God. So the way to reach the truth is through discussion. You take the guesswork of the Bible writers and the guesswork of what we might come up with today, and you discuss it, and then you vote on it. And so the truth is found by majority guess. Or at least it's the truth for the next five years until you discuss it and vote on it again. So truth is relative. It's the product of discussion in every generation. Well, that's a theory. Whereas evangelical or Bible-believing or orthodox Christianity, whatever you want to call it, which is what the Church of England should stand for, and what this church does stand for, or is trying to stand for, says that the Bible is not the result of people making fallible guesses about God, but God revealing himself by his Spirit through them. So that actually the way to reach truth is not discussion, it's by reading the Bible and taking God at his word. And sure, we have to be careful that we don't misinterpret the Bible. And sure, it helps to discuss what the Bible means because no one has a monopoly on understanding it, which is why we encourage so much Bible discussion here at St. Joseph's. But at the end of the day, it is the Bible which is the authoritative word of God in the church. Folks, this is, this is not fake news. It is God's certain word. That's what we hold in our hands. Which actually means this book becomes the litmus test for everything. So if someone comes along teaching something that sounds really new and different in the church, we test it by this. Or someone comes along going, Jesus isn't coming back. It's just a fairy story for people scared of the dark. We test it by this. And if someone starts saying, well, you know, godliness, it's not, it's not really that important. You know, we just got to love people. No, we test it by this. Because this is God speaking. So, brothers and sisters, let's pray that we pay attention and that we know who to listen to. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray.
Almighty Father, we, we thank you that you've not left yourself hidden and unknowable. Thank you for speaking and revealing yourself and, and revealing your will to us in your word. Please forgive us when we've, when we've not listened and we've not paid attention to it. We pray that you would make each and every one of us more and more people of your book. That in a dark world, we might follow your light and know and live the life that you have set out for us. We pray this for our sake and for Jesus' glory. Amen.